Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I am drinking a strawberry daiquiri. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a rum and coke, and on today's episode, we're talking about another disastrous music festival, and that is Woodstock 99. The original Woodstock Music and Art Fair took place from August 15th to August 18th, of 1969 on a dairy farm in Bethel, New York. It was advertised as quote-unquote three days of peace and music. Around 186,000 advance tickets were sold, but almost 500,000 people were present for the festival. Musicians including Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and the Grateful Dead played to peaceful and happy crowds. The festival became legendary and is now seen as an American cultural milestone with documentaries, movies, and books centered on the festival. In 1994, to honor the 25th anniversary of the festival, Woodstock 94 was held. It's estimated around 350,000 people attended the two-day festival held near Saugerties, New York. Similar to the original Woodstock, thousands of people broke in for free, making many logistical protocols like proper security unenforceable. This allowed many attendees to enter freely with alcohol and other banned items. Rain caused massive mud puddles and crowds threw mud at each other and performers. Most notably, the lead singer of the band, Jackal, burned a stool on stage attacked it with a chainsaw, and fired a gun during their performance. Following the success of Woodstock 94, promoters began planning for Woodstock 99, which would honor the 30th anniversary of the original Woodstock. Promoters were determined to make a profit at Woodstock 99. Unlike the previous Woodstocks, corporate sponsors were brought in and a vendor mall was set up. Tickets ranged from $150 to $180, which is around $240 today with inflation, and guests were charged for other event experiences. 225,000 tickets were sold, for the event was $250,000. In order to maximize the profits, a wide range of some of the most popular musicians at the time were booked. This included Alanis Morissette, Sheryl Crow, Rage Against the Machine, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. MTV sponsored the event, and performances were simulcast on pay-per-view. The production staff was excited to be a part of the event and hoped to bring in the original spirit of Woodstock to the modern festival, but quickly saw corners being cut. A few weeks before Woodstock 99, promoters John Shire Michael Lang, one of the creators of Woodstock, and Ozzy Kilkenny were found in violation of a 1970 law that was passed in the wake of the chaos of the first Woodstock. The promoters avoided $1.5 million in fines from Oneida County for failing to meet deadlines to the new law set for transportation and security. They convinced the county to waive them promising a staff of approximately 1,200 guards. Locals hired directly by Woodstock were promised $12 an hour and subcontracted guards from around New York State earned $6 to $8 an hour. Guards were housed in on-site barracks with only cold water and slept on air mattresses. Some guards claimed that other guards were looting each other's quarters. The event was held at the decommissioned Griffiths, Air Force Base in Rome, New York. 
from July 23rd to July 25th, 1999, with a pre-show on July 22nd. The Air Force Base was chosen in part because it had roads, housing, and a hospital already built, which would help promoters save money. In addition to two main stages, there was a rave tent, an extreme sports area, and a film festival to keep attendees entertained. Woodstock 99 was off to a bad start almost immediately. During the Tuesday pre-show, hundreds of security guards quit. The security that was left was on duty outside the gates and were focused on getting people into the festival without drugs, alcohol, weapons, or outside food and water. Those caught with drugs were told by security that they could get in with the contraband if they paid off security. A plywood and chain length fence was set up around the perimeter of the festival grounds. Once again, people without tickets climbed over and tore through the fences. During the Friday night set from the offspring, a large mosh pit became violent, but that was just the start of what was to come. Corn took the stage later that evening, and tons of people came into the medic tents with broken bones during their set. Another 25,000 fans arrived late Friday night. On the night of Saturday, July 24th, Lent Biscuit performed, and violence broke out during their song break stuff when the crowd began tearing down the plywood walls around the sound tower. Leading up to their show, tensions were in the air and the crowd began throwing things like batteries, disposable cameras, and large rocks. People within the mosh pit at the Limp Biscuit show were also severely injured. The medical staff was overwhelmed and their materials were nearly bled dry after the performance. The chaotic energy of the night could not be contained and traveled into the rave hangar. People were handing out drugs and having sex throughout the venue. Later Saturday night, a man stole a van and drove it into the rave hangar during Fatboy Slim's DJ set. He was forced to stop until the van could be moved, and the crowd was furious. They threw garbage at him, and Fatboy Slim was forced to evacuate. He could see that the fun was ending and the tone was shifting. Inside the van, security found a young girl that was passed out with her clothes pulled up. She had most likely just had been sexually assaulted. A member of the production team called this incident, quote, a byproduct of what was allowed to happen, end quote. Sexual violence was rampant at the festival. During Limp Biscuit's performance, a woman reported being pulled into the mosh pit and raped. According to an eyewitness who spoke to the Washington Post, they reported seeing a crowd-surfing young woman get, quote, pulled down into the crowd and gang-raped during Corn's Friday show, end quote. The eyewitness went on to say, quote, they're big brawny people and it seemed like most of the crowd around them was cheering them on. It was so disturbing. You're thinking, if this girl was being raped, wouldn't all these people try to stop what was going on? End quote. In total, five rapes and numerous sexual assaults were reported to the police who said prosecuting offenders would likely be difficult, quote, given the dispersal of the crowd, end quote. Many more incidents of sexual violence and harassment took place and were not reported. The Associated Press said, quote, crisis intervention workers said they witnessed many more sexual assaults, some taking place in the mosh pit, end quote. 
eight on-duty New York State troopers were also accused of misconduct after a report surfaced in a Syracuse newspaper that alleged several troopers encouraged two women to strip and then posed for pictures with the naked women. Festival staff also faced sexual assaults. A 23-year-old food worker told a New York rape counselor that the female employees had to be accompanied by, quote-unquote, at least two men for protection. Temperatures went up to 100 degrees during the festival, and the summer heat was worsened by the base's asphalt and tarmac roads and a lack of shade and green spaces. Attendees were not allowed to bring outside food or drinks into the festival. There were free water fountains, but lines were long and frustrated festival goers broke the pipes, which then created mud puddles. There were also not enough toilets and many facilities became unusable. Human feces reportedly leaked into drinking and shower water, meaning concert goers were essentially consuming raw sewage. Attendees also swam and played in the mud and human waste from overflowing toilets, causing numerous attendees to get trench mouth or trench foot. Woodstock also failed to provide adequate plumbing for the vendors, so they had to build their own. Many also became severely dehydrated due to the lack of access to water and refusing to pay high prices for bottles of water and food. It's estimated 700 people were treated for heat exhaustion and dehydration during the festival. 24-year-old David G. DeRosia died from a heart-related illness after collapsing in the crowd while watching Metallica perform and being in a coma for two days from, quote, hyperthermia, probably secondary to heat stroke, end quote. Two years later, DeRosia's mom filed a lawsuit against the promoters. The lawsuit stated that DeRosia died because concert promoters were negligent by not providing enough fresh water and adequate medical care for attendees. In addition to the mud and heat, trash cans were few and far between. Trash covered every inch of the grounds, and attendees frequently threw trash at performers. Clifton Property Services the sanitation firm hired by Woodstock were later complained that the festival organizers hampered cleanup efforts. At one point, sanitation workers quit, saying they said they have been given no instruction and no water. Each morning, Michael and John held a press conference giving an update from the previous day's festivities, and every day they downplayed the violence that occurred by blaming issues on a small group of troublemakers. The violence continued throughout the festival, but hit a peak during the event's final day. A 19-year-old vendor described the entire day as, quote-unquote, having a wear aura. And Spin Magazine said, quote, three days of being wasted in the broiling sun was beginning to have a profound neurological effect on the crowd, end quote. People were exhausted and pissed off. Concert goers also realized that there was very little consequence for their actions. During Creed set, someone drove a stolen Mercedes Benz through an opening in the perimeter wall up to a sound tower about 80 yards from the stage and left it. Megadeth and the Red Hot Chili Peppers were the final main stage performances. Earlier in the day, the group PAC, an anti-gun violence group, gave out candles to guests who visited their booth. They planned to hold a candlelight vigil for the victims of the Columbine Massacre during the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, quote-unquote, Under the Bridge. 
Production staff told promoters to not hold the visual, and John allegedly told them to quote-unquote shut up. Concert goers used their candles and lighters to start a bonfire, and plastic water bottles that littered the festival grounds were used as fuel. By the end of both bands' performances, the five large bonfires had spread to both stages and set an audio tower ablaze. Smaller bonfires were also set and people danced around the fires. The fire department was called, but they were too scared to come out due to the volatile crowd. The Red Hot Chili Peppers frontman Anthony Kiedis was asked by staff to try and talk to the crowd and calm them down. But instead, the Red Hot Chili Peppers performed a cover of Jimi Hendrix's song Fire, and more fires were started. Rumors of a surprise finale performance had been spreading all weekend long, and disappointed attendees soon became angry when no other performers came to the stage. This pent-up anger created a mob mentality and all hell broke loose. About 200 people surrounded the area of the bonfire and some began jumping through the fire. Medical personnel near the east stage ran for safety and those who hadn't fled the site already were ordered to take refuge near the Woodstock management offices. The MTV team, who had been harassed and taunted by festival goers all weekend long, eventually evacuated too. At 10.45, a speaker tower fell to the ground after it was shaken by a group of attendees. Speakers and lighting equipment were hurled into the fire. A mob amassed on top of a beer garden tent and it collapsed. Between 500 and 700 New York State troopers and local law enforcement agencies were called in after the violence continued and ATMs and tractor trailers full of merchandise were broken into and looted. Plywood pieces of the perimeter fence were thrown into the fires, as were vendor tables. The fires were allegedly not contained until the next morning and destroyed 12 trailers, a small bus, toilets, and vendor booths, in addition to causing explosions. Once the crowds were driven away, Michael Lang went out to assess the damages. Production staff claimed he never once asked if they were okay and he did not seem to care. An unscheduled press conference was held on Monday morning and once again, John and Michael downplayed the fires and riots that took place. They were accused of taking no responsibility for the festival's destruction. An estimated 42 to 44 people were arrested during the festival. According to Women's Health magazine, quote, At the end of the concert, the New York State Department of Health had recorded 5,162 medical cases over the four-day concert, end quote. In addition to the death of George DeRosia, 28-year-old Tara K. Weaver was hit by a car and killed as she was leaving the festival, and a 44-year-old man who had attended the original Woodstock died from cardiac arrest during the festival. Many who were assaulted or injured during the festival went on to sue the promoters. Following the end of the festival, production staff were asked to sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and to not speak with the media. It took three weeks for the festival grounds to be cleaned, and in total, $22,000 was stolen from various ATMs and over $75,000 was spent to repair the grounds. The festival revenue was estimated to be $28.8 million. Jane Gonnell, a reporter with the San Francisco Examiner, called Woodstock 99, quote-unquote, the day the music died. Del, what are your thoughts on the disaster that was Woodstock 99? I think that this is a prime example of what happens when people realize that their negative actions will have no consequences 
And so they took this as an opportunity to just do whatever they wanted. And I understand that it's maybe more difficult to prosecute, but the fact that serious crimes were going unpunished just shows what a mess this whole thing was. I think that the reporter from the San Francisco Examiner was exaggerating a bit when she said it was the day the music died. But it was definitely a day where people looked at festivals in a different light and a day where people saw that if you give someone an inch, they will take a mile. And one of the most surprising things to me is how low the damage numbers are. You would expect millions of dollars in damage from this, and this doesn't seem to be the case. It's also amazing that they made almost $30 million back in 1999. And I wonder if they think it was worth it. I wonder if you were to sit them down now, what they say, it was just a crazy couple of days. We made $30 million. It wasn't that bad. Or what they say, while we may be happy with the revenue that we earned, we wish that we had better protocols in place to ensure that people were safe, especially the individuals who lost their life during the festival. What are your thoughts? I think that they would say it was worth it. They, Cher and Michael Lang, still seem to not take any responsibility. So a lot of this research that I did was from the Netflix documentary Trainwreck, and they're both featured in that. There's also some other links below from a lot of reporters who were at the event, and I really don't think they care, which is really shocking and upsetting. The whole festival is really shocking. These people were some of the biggest concert promoters. Michael Lang, he had done this two other times already. You would think they would know what to do. And yes, I understand that they're trying to make a profit, but it seems like it was so poorly planned. Like, they just threw it together and hoped it would work. So it's shocking in that aspect, but Seeing the damage and destruction is really wild too. And seeing the crowds, so much of Woodstock 99 was documented. So you could go on YouTube and see Limp Biscuit's performance and Corrin's performance and interviews that MTV and other newspapers, TV shows, whatever did. And at the end of the festival, it really looks like a war zone. There's cars flipped over. There's debris and trash everywhere. You were saying it's surprising that they made so much money and it's surprising that the damages weren't more. It's really surprising to me that more people didn't die. When you can see in the documentary that when the sound tower falls, they're really lucky nobody was underneath that. Someone really could have been seriously injured. And also when some of the trucks exploded because of the propane and the gas, that's shocking that that didn't have more damage. And with the heat as well. And honestly, during the mosh pits, people were getting severely injured, like broken bones and like spinal fractures and head injuries, serious stuff. And I'm sure I probably sound like an old lady that doesn't want to have any fun, but it was really an unsafe, toxic environment. And like you said, it's wild that so much of this was allowed to happen. And part of it is because of the security and just lack of any type of authority. And 
Michael Lang in the documentary, he says he didn't want the event to have like the police state in it, which I think is such bullshit. If you're going to have an event that can hold 250,000 people, you need some type of order. That's ridiculous to me. And it sucks because we're going to get to this a little later, but there were some people that really just wanted to go in there and have fun. And there were some people in there that I think did want to create chaos and have like a wild time and like a story to tell their friends. And I think it that did ruin a lot of it. I think that created like the toxic, volatile culture that was there. And we're going to get to more of this too. But the promoters really need to be held accountable. I mean, it's too late now. But the promoters are a part of this quote unquote train wreck that happened at Woodstock 99. Do you think there should be another Woodstock Dell? Absolutely. I know that this event was definitely tragic, had a lot not going for it, but I don't think that should stop another festival from happening again. I think that a lot is different in modern times, and I think that a lot can be done to make sure that the same outcomes of Woodstock 99 wouldn't happen in a future iteration of the event. So I would have no problem with another one being held. Festivals are not my thing, but I can definitely see it being an enjoyable experience for those that like it. What about you? I'm kind of in the middle. Like I think it would be great to have another one. And if we can get like different people promoting it, planning it, I think it would be cool to have another one. I know that the Woodstock name was kind of tarnished with Woodstock 99, but I think so many people still look at the original festival from 1969 and really idol idealize it. And that was by no means a perfect festival, but it was a lot more peaceful than what occurred at Woodstock 99. I think it's possible to kind of like reclaim the name and, hey, like this is going to be like the last one. Let's make it a good one. I know they tried to do a 50th anniversary special in 2019, and that didn't work out for whatever reasons. But I don't know, I would like to see something like that. But I know that there are more modern instances of festivals turning violent and chaotic and people dying, which I do want to bring up in relation to like what we're about to talk about. So a little more on that in a second. The public was left wondering why Woodstock 99 was such a mess. Here are a few of the most popular theories. One of the most popular is that the poor conditions led to the crowd's frustration. And Spin Magazine, I think, put this kind of in an interesting way. They said, they have slowly become the capitalist pigs their generation had fought so hard against as idealistic youth. Here they are, squeezing the youth of today dry to make a buck. And singer Jewel, who performed at the festival, said that it felt like a crowd could turn at any time. And MTV's Kurt Loder said it was dangerous to be around. The whole scene was scary. There were just waves of hatred bouncing around the place. It was clear we had to get out of there. It was like a concentration camp. To get in, you get frisked to make sure you're not bringing in any water or food that would prevent you from buying from their outrageously priced boots. You wallow around in garbage and human waste. There was a palpable mood of anger. And in the docuseries that we mentioned, Trainwreck, attendees and staff said they felt the issues with trash were the downfall of the festival 
that caused everything to unravel. There was also an all-around lack of respect from the venue to the attendees that caused a lot of hostility. And lenient security also paved the way for violence and destruction. People knew they could get away with anything and they really tested the limits. And one of the security guards interviewed in the documentary said something along the lines of attendees felt like the venue didn't care, so why should they? But I think that was really in relation to everything from the trash to not enough water to not being able to bring in food to no shade to like, I don't even think there was enough camping space for people. There was just no care for the attendees who were young and they're paying a lot of money to be at this event that's supposed to be so historical. So I'm sure they felt very disrespected and I I understand their frustration. Others have accused musicians of egging the crowd on and making the overall situation worse. The lineup consisted predominantly of metal and new metal bands who captured the spirit of the increasingly angry audience. John admitted he knew nothing about the lineup he had booked. A production staff member claimed he told promoters to rethink the lineup, but they did not listen. Limp Bizkit's Fred Durst faced criticism for inciting violence in the crowd. Durst told the crowd, quote, get all your negative energy out, end quote. Between songs, Durst made another announcement, quote, they want to ask you to mellow out. They said too many people are getting hurt. Don't let nobody get hurt, but I don't think you should mellow out, end quote. Salon Magazine said, quote, irresponsible. There's no other words for Limp Bizkit frontman Fred Durst. He's goading the crowd, pumping them up higher and higher. It's beyond working them into enjoying the show, end quote. One attendee disagreed that the bands were inciting violence. He said, quote, if you didn't want to be in a rough situation there, you shouldn't have been in the mosh pit. I'm tired of people making excuses for their own fucking stupidity. Limp Bizkit equals mosh pit. Duh. End quote. Attendees and performers have been quoted as saying the vibes and the crowd in the rave tent were better. After the concert, Everlast added, quote, people are trying to blame bands for what the kids did and say what a reflection it is on this generation. All those people are nostalgic for something that happened 30 years ago. I don't think anything real came out of that first experience. It was just three days of sex and drugs. And oh, the world is such a great place. Then they went home, became yuppies and fucked the whole country up, end quote. Going off of this, many blamed quote-unquote male rage for many of the issues, including the aggressive tone at Woodstock 99. Collider said in an article, quote, The late 90s was a period of rampant misogyny. The progressive grunge era of the early 90s faded away to more macho and aggressive new metal acts like Limp Bizkit, end quote. Many also felt the generation who attended Woodstock was most certainly one of the angriest that we had seen in a long time. Attendees and staff interviewed for the train wreck documentary said it was a bunch of white college dudes who ruined the peacefulness of the event and that they were, quote unquote, there to be dicks. Singer Jewel said that the environment at Woodstock 99 was, quote unquote, very male ego, and she remembers men constantly screaming at women. 
Cheryl Crow and other female performers were catcalled while performing, and large groups of men would surround women and yell in their faces to, for them to take their shirts off. The festival has also been described as, quote, a frat party to a large degree, end quote. Red Hot Chili Peppers bassist Flea and Offspring frontman Dexter Holland admonished the male concertgoers for their inappropriate behavior toward women in the mosh pit. One woman who was raped at the festival later said that the size and mood of the crowd stopped her from yelling for help and that she was afraid she'd be beaten up. And finally, the crowd was compared to a quote-unquote human zoo, and some blamed the pay-per-view element for the wildness of the crowd. So in the Trainwreck documentary, they talk about usually at a concert, if it's pay-per-view, they're really just filming the concert. That's what people are there to watch. But with Woodstock 99, they were filming the attendees and like all the crazy stuff they were doing too. So understandably, the crazier you act, the more likely they're going to film you. So people turned it up is another theory. So with all of that being said, Del, what, I guess, who do we think is at fault for Woodstock 99? I think the promoters. They are the ones responsible for the logistics of the event, including security, including all the things that need to happen to make sure that it is a safe environment. No, they can't control individual attendees, but they can make sure that basic things like water is there, make sure that trash is picked up, and they didn't do that. And that added on to the atmosphere. It reminds me of like the broken windows theory, where if you see something in disarray, you're going to think that that is the status, and you're not going to do anything to change that. And I think that's what happened in this case. I think the promoters just didn't care. It was probably money that motivated them. And it was just a general sense of, we're here to have fun. We're here not to care. And yeah. I would agree. They're definitely the root of the problem. And I do agree. I think the biggest thing is the poor conditions leading to everyone being pissed off. It starts with the garbage. It's the heat. It starts with not being able to bring food and water in, especially if people are going to be camping there. That is completely unfair. An unopened water bottle or whatever, an open water bottle, it's not like you can stop everybody from bringing alcohol in anyway. That's not right. And I'm sure they could have looked at the forecast to see that it was going to be really hot and humid and uncomfortable too. Then the trash, then literally having unsafe health conditions with the toilets and the showers and whatnot, not having enough trash cans not having enough security and not ensuring everybody there can feel safe. And then I think everything really spiraled from that because I'm sure on the first day, a lot of these people will go into the men being really disgusting. I'm sure they saw, okay, I can yell at all these people and no one's going to stop me. I do think that if you watch the documentary, it is a lot of white guys with no shirts on. That's not a place I want to be at particularly. I know I would feel really safe and uncomfortable. Actually, I'll share this experience. So I went to a big music festival quite a few years ago now. And a man did scream in my face there because I wouldn't move out of his way when he could have walked any direction around me and he decided to physically shove me out of his way. I can really relate to this sense of being uncomfortable and like disrespected at a festival by a man. So maybe I 
think I am a little biased because of that. But just watching the documentary too, you can see all these men yelling at people, touching women. You can see in pictures too, you know, a girl crowd surfing over the crowd and she has a bikini top on. And then in the next picture, somebody's hand is up her shirt. Or in one of the videos, someone is like touching a woman's, a topless woman's breast. And then she has to like swat his hand away. I think I'm sure that probably caused the women there to be mad too and on edge. So again, we're talking about this like sense of anger, this disrespect toward everyone. And then I don't think the musicians are completely to blame, but I do think that it was made worse by some of these bands. It's hard to say because this is something they say in the documentary. Can you blame Limp Biscuit for being Limp Biscuit? But at the same time, and this is something I want to ask you, I do think that performers have a responsibility to keep the crowd safe. Now, obviously, they don't have any say in security and the heat and everything. But Fred Durst, I believe, could see the people tearing down the plywood walls around the sound tower. And I mean, I think any normal human being could think, okay, this could probably get dangerous. Maybe I can say something to like calm these people down. And some of the people that were there and saw the performance said that they really felt, I guess, validated by him saying, whether you're angry about this or that, like, we're all just going to let out this negativity now. And I'm sure that was like cathartic for them. But I think it really went too far. And I that didn't help the festival. And it without a doubt made things worse. And I do think it led into what happened on Sunday and all the riots and looting and chaos that came about that day too. So I actually disagree. I don't think that performers are responsible for crowd safety. They are paid for one job and that is to perform. I think that if we put the burden of crowd safety on them, that takes away from the performance, which would then lead the crowd to be even more upset than they already were. Because then the question is, well, in all of your music, we're raging out together. As we come here for you, Limbiscuit and all the other acts that have that same persona, we're coming here to see that. We're not coming here for a father figure to tell us to calm down as we're just trying to let loose. Because I bet for a lot of these people, this was their vacation. This was their break from work. This was them not just having to listen to Limp Bizkit and scream into a pillow in their home, but being able to scream with hundreds of thousands of like-minded individuals. I would agree that he likely didn't do anything to calm the crowd down. I don't think that was his job. I think that's the promoter's job. I think that irregardless of whatever performer says to get the crowd excited, to even get them minorly aggressive, if the promoter has things in place to ensure safety and a safe environment, then that's not going to lead to violence. And so. When he says, yo, let out all your negative energy, I don't think he's saying go out and rape and murder someone. He's just saying scream. He's saying jump up. He's saying jump on the back of someone else because that's what you do at a Limp Bizkit concert. 
And that's what this is. You feel that aggression. You feel that rage. And you let it out. That's why when the guy, he had said, like, people are making excuses for their own stupidity. I agree with that. Like, you know what you're getting into. As compared to the earlier, like, hippie iteration of Woodstock, you saw the performers that were going to be there. You knew this was a different vibe. And while I don't want to victim blame, and I'm definitely not going to do that, I think that hearing the stories that there were other areas that were better definitely speaks to there were opportunities for people to change the environment that they were in if Olympus Get Concert was not where they found themselves to be the safest or the most accommodated. I do agree with that attendee saying like, you kind of know what you're getting into at a mosh pit and you prepare. I've never been in a mosh pit. And I honestly, part of it is because I don't want to, I don't think I can handle that. I wanted to ask that question about the performer's responsibility for safety, because that really came up after the Astro World Festival and the deaths from that. So for anyone that doesn't know, there was a music festival last year, 2021 in November, and it was rapper Travis Scott. And at the festival, there was a huge crowd surge that caused a crush and people died. There were 10 people, I believe it was 10 people in total that died. And a lot of people criticized him for not having the crowd's safety in mind. This is a different situation than Woodstock 99 because at Astro World. There were allegedly tons of people yelling from the crowd for him to stop their performance. And I don't know if you know this, Del, if you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think at one point an ambulance was trying to get through the crowd and he just kept performing. That is true. There was an ambulance in the crowd and you can see it on some videos that were taken actually on Kylie Jenner's Instagram where you could see the ambulance in the crowd. Yeah, so like in that instance, I mean, I would stop the concert. You can keep talking to the crowd, keep some type of energy going, but communicate to them like, hey, we need to calm down for a minute. We need to let these people come in, make sure everybody's safe, do their job, and then we'll go from there. We'll see if it's okay to keep performing. So I kind of had that in mind going into the Woodstock 99. Again, totally different, but following that there were tons of videos and you probably have seen some of different performers noticing hey the crowd is getting too close there's people passing out i know adele there's several videos of adele stopping her performances to tell security somebody just passed out in there we need to help them so it's interesting i guess to see i don't know if, if times have changed maybe that's more common now than like back the 90s and earlier for performers to be more aware. Maybe it's because of Woodstock 99. Performers seem to maybe be a little more aware now. Who knows? Yeah, that's true. I did want to add that Travis Scott did stop the concert a couple times when he could to try to get help to people that passed out. But he did say that the things that were happening on stage, like the noise and the pyrotechnics, made it hard for him to really understand the gravity of what was going on. And I think that's another thing, too. It's not just the musicians on stage performing. It's everything that's going into 
this show as well, which is just another reason why I wouldn't place any blame for them because I can only imagine you have people yelling at you, sure, but you have fireworks going off behind you. And a lot of the times they wear earpieces in their ear to cancel out a lot of that surrounding noise so that they can focus on the performance. Yeah, I do agree with that. I don't think in every case the performers can be aware of everything that's going on. So I wanted to end with this quote. I don't know where it came from, but this does sum up how I feel. And I think a little bit of how you feel, Del. So this journalist, whoever said, quote, I think that fundamentally the takeaway from this story is that it was a sort of perfect cocktail of unfortunate events, missteps, and mishaps that individually might not have been problematic, but together combined to bring this thing tumbling down and leave it in a charred, smoky mess. And the limp biscuit factor was one factor of many. I mean, that's definitely, I can agree with 95% of that. Yeah, you do have a situation, unfortunately, where individually things are fine and you don't consider what happens when it all comes together in the worst way possible. Definitely. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the events of Woodstock 99. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with another new episode. As always, stay safe.